Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you along. Hey, Ken and CM and Keith, and to the rest of you who are with us. Those of you who are listening later via podcast, if you are uh, working out, good for you. If you're driving, keep your eyes on the road, and uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, Ken says, is Gabe taking music at university? Uh, he is not. Uh, he graduated high school actually in December and, uh, he is working full time and he's got some business aspirations and some more music in the works. Um, he's got a little cheat that, uh, my undergrad is in music. So I'm, uh, I've taught him quite a bit and, uh, we were just ta- talking the other day about him uh, learning some more music theory. So that's kind of where he's at on that. But, uh, as he has time, he's got a lot of more music, a lot of good songs in the works, which I'm excited to get out. So we're we're plodding along with that. Anyway, that's not why we're here. Thanks for the question, though. Appreciate the interest. Uh, we are talking Hebrews, and we're in chapter 12. And if you were with us on Thursday, as we looked at uh, this uh, this mountain that we've come to, uh, it, it's a stark contrast to the old covenant mountain. This is, that's the point he's been making. Uh, again, I, I know I've said this a million times, but we, we need to always keep the context and the purpose of the letter in mind as we're studying it. Well, Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were former Jews. And they'd come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. They were fully on board with the new covenant and so on. But then persecution came from the Jews, because the Jews did not like it as Jews left Judaism for this Christianity thing. And they started turning up the heat, literally burning down houses, throwing them in prison, that kind of thing. And so now in order to uh, avoid persecution, these believers are tempted to go back to the old covenant. And this whole letter that we call Hebrews is writing to warn them of what would happen if they do go that direction, go back there, and also to hold out to them what they've come to. Why would you want to go back there when you have this? So uh, in chapter 12, he has described the mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, from which the Jews received the old covenant. Remember, it was a terrifying mountain. Uh, God showed up and it was on fire and there was lightning and there was a loud blaring trumpet. There was smoke and earthquake and on and on with all these sort of natural, what we'd call natural uh, disaster kind of things. And it, it was a somber, terrifying experience. So much so that God said, if, you, if anybody comes up here, uh, they are to be executed on the spot. Right? If Hebrews says, that's not what you've come to in the new covenant. You've come to Mount Zion, and we trace through Mount Zion through portions of the Old Testament, such as in the Psalms and especially in Isaiah, where Mount Zion is the the city, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, Mount Zion is the mountain of the Lord that is going to rise up above all other mountains, that all the nations are going to stream to Mount Zion. It's the place where God himself dwells. Writer of Hebrews says, you've come to that. That's far superior to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, right? Here it is, chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Not you will come. You have. And to the city of the living God. 
Now, we also looked at how Jerusalem was often called the city of David in the Old Testament. We've come to, he says, the city of God, God's city, the city of the living God. He is alive. He is reigning. It's his city. You've come to that city. And then he gives it a name, Jerusalem. But notice he doesn't just say Jerusalem, right? The heavenly Jerusalem. Not the earthly Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem that's in what we'd call the Middle East or ancient Near East, that kind of thing. No, the heavenly one, the city that all the Old Testament saints were working toward, moving toward. He just talked about all this in chapter 11. Abraham looking for a city whose designer builder was God, a city not his own. We've come to it. We have reached the fulfillment. Now, there's... there's there's another element, right? There's actually going, dying and going to heaven and the, and the consummation and the resurrection, all that that's yet future. But everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ and his new covenant. And it has come. And so the writer is saying, look, you've come to this. Don't go back. Don't be tempted to go that direction. This is what you've come to. So that's, that's what's going on here in chapter 12. And now we want to look at the next couple of descriptors of uh, this place that we've come to, this, this setting we've come to in the new covenant. It says here at the end of verse 22, you've come to myriads of angels. Myriads of angels. What's a myriad? Hey, Bob, Bob. <laughs> Morning. Hey, Ron. Good to have you with us. What's a, what's a, what's a myriad? Well, it's a huge number, thousands upon thousands. It's used uh, on several occasions in the scripture to describe this, this throng, this, this massive crowd of angels. Why does the writer of Hebrews mention angels and a, and a tremendous, vast group of angels that we've come to? What do you think? Give me a moment. I know uh, some of you probably have some ideas about this. What? Why would he mention that? Let me pull back up here for those of you watching video. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. What does that mean? Where? Why? Why would they be concerned about that? Why would they care about that? I'm going to give you a moment to see if anybody's got ideas. I don't know. <laughs> That's why I'm asking. Uh, a couple thoughts come to mind. He has spent a lot of time already in this letter talking about angels. If you recall most of chapter one and into chapter two, he compares angels and Christ, showing that Christ is vastly superior to angels. Angels are servants. Angels are not the son of God. Angels are not the heir of all things and so on. Uh, Ken says angels are worshiping God, question mark. Yes, maybe this heavenly city where the angels are worshiping God. We certainly see that in, in Revelation. Um, we see lots of angels in Daniel 2, uh, Daniel uh, uh, 7, the, uh, the view of Jesus taking his uh, throne. CM says they are joining us as worshipers, maybe, although there hasn't been any, any worship language so far 
here. Now, maybe it's implied, maybe it's understood. Uh, Lewis says, Jesus reigns as king. So the myriads of angels surrounding him, kind of getting on, along with Siam and, and uh, Ken there, that they are gathered around worshiping. We've got these images of, of Revelation in our head, don't we? Uh, which may be exactly what he's saying. Um, you know me, though, I like to stick to, to context um, and try to sort through what, what's the significance here. Uh, so maybe so. Maybe, maybe that's as simple as that, that there are myriads of angels gathered around uh, the throne at Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Uh, he is going to go on and talk about Jesus here in a couple verses. So maybe that's what it is. Um, and that would fit with his extensive comparison of angels and Jesus in chapters one and two, just to kind of bring that back to say the the throng of angels are here and, and they're not the center, but they're worshiping Jesus. Another thought that comes to my mind is, um, if you recall back in chapter two, we discussed how there were angels present at the giving of the law. Deuteronomy, is it 31? 33, somewhere in there, uh, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it mentions angels at Sinai at the giving of the law. In fact, uh, the writer of Hebrews and Stephen in Acts 7 and Paul in Galatians 3 all talk about the law uh, being given through angels. Angels had some role in the law being given to Moses and the, and the Israelites. So it's also possible that as he continues this uh, comparison of Sinai and Mount Zion, what, what the Jews went to and now what we have come to, that he's simply mentioning that, that the angels are here again uh, as part of this gathering as we receive the new covenant, so to speak. So I don't know. It's just interesting that he lists that there. And I think it's, uh, you've offered some good suggestions and it's worth pondering there. All right, let's move on to another interesting question. So verse 23 continues with what we've come to, and it says here, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Okay, so you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, and to the general assembly of the, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, I said to you last week that knowing a little bit of Greek uh, helps some things, or at least raises some questions to this passage. Here's one of them. In the Greek, and I'm looking at it right over here. I don't have it pulled up for you. Well, I could, uh, I could do that. Uh, let me pull this up right here. Not that... Uh, you're going to care too much about this, maybe, but uh, some of you might. And let me, uh, so let me pull. Uh, so here is the Greek. Why is that? Oh, it's because I'm on the wrong. Uh, all right, now let me. Don't mind me. I'm just getting my things in. Okay, so, uh, and let me pull this. All right, so right here, this word right here, if you notice, um, this phrase right here is the myriad of angels, right? Which corresponds to what we saw here. Then it's got, in the Greek, is this word here. It's not brought into the translation here. 
So here's a whole word and it's not translated. Uh, it's the, the Greek word panegyrus. We get our word um, panegyric from it. Do you know what a panegyric is? Anybody? You guys are a smart audience. What's a panegyric? This is the Greek word that's transliterated panegyric. Is that how you say it? Panegyric? I think it's panegyric. It's not translated. I don't know why. It's not missing in some of the best manuscripts, as you sometimes see. The NAS just didn't translate it. All right, so let me go back then to, uh, to here, and let me pull up the, uh, the ESV. The ESV brings it in and attaches it to the, the angels. So the ESV says, we've come to, instead of myriad, it says, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What's festal? Uh, feast, think of feast, or at least festive, right? It's a celebration, it's a joyful assembly, that kind of thing. So a joyful gathering, a festal gathering. So it's, it's describing here, it's saying that angels are in festal gathering. So that tells you what panegyric means, right? It's, a, it's an assembly, a public assembly. It's done out in the open for all to see. And it's this large gathering for some something. So the ESV believes that festal gathering, panegyric, is applied to the gathering of the angels. And so does the NIV, at least from 1984. Uh, they have it, you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels, that's the myriad of angels, in joyful assembly. And you can probably tell by the way I'm describing this. I don't agree with this. I'm going to go somewhere else with it. But do you at least see, do you find it strange that the NAS doesn't include it at all? You've got thousands of angels in joyful assembly in the NIV. You've got innumerable angels in festal gathering in the ESV. And the NAS just says myriads of angels. Well, here's where the NAS, what NAS does with it. Um, it doesn't use the term joyful or festal, but it says the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. That's actually better. It applies to, it's, it's the, in the, and I'm getting too technical for you. Just trust me. <laughs> it, it's uh, of the same uh, gender and number and case of, the, of church. So it should go with church. It, it shouldn't go with angels. It should go with church. So think joyful assembly, joyful gathering, festal assembly, public assembly, and church of the firstborn. Now there's one other element of the Greek that's interesting here. The firstborn in English sounds like it's singular, but in the Greek it's plural. Should be firstborns. Now, if you followed me along at all, uh, you know, I make a big deal of this word firstborn. I think it is one of the most underrated terms in the entire scripture because Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. Colossians 2, I wrote my, uh, or Colossians 1, I should say. My, I wrote my whole book, uh, Exalted, uh, basically to draw attention to the fact that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. 
and that he has now been elevated to the primogeniture, to the, to the firstborn reigning over heaven and earth. He gets the, inher- the, the earth as his inheritance and all that because he's the firstborn. So I think it's an extremely important term. But here it's plural. So I don't think it's talking about Jesus. So what, what would firstborns plural bring to mind? You've come to the festal or joyful public assembly and church of the firstborns. While you're pondering that, let me, I realize I was unclear what I said at the beginning of this. The distinction I was trying to make was that some of the translations put general assembly with the myriads of angels and the NAS, I believe, rightly puts it with the church. And I, I just realized what I was saying was they don't translate it at all. And that's not true. Uh, They do put it here, but they don't have the joyful part or the public part. I guess general assembly might be public. Anyway, just want to clarify that. I, as I was hearing myself talk about this, I realized I, I misspoke there. All right. So Ken says Israel. Uh, okay. Israel is called God's firstborn, right? In uh, Exodus, uh, he makes a big deal to Pharaoh. This Israel's my firstborn, but that's still singular. But I think you're getting warmer. CM says the joyful assembly would be the redeemed. Uh, yeah, the assembly of that would be the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So if it's the joyful assembly, festal assembly, public festal assembly of the called out ones of the firstborns, can you think of anything else with this word firstborn that would apply to those of us who are called out and joining in this joyful assembly who else were the firstborns who else were were signified by the term firstborn in the old covenant mark says does kai separate or join assembly and church yeah there are kai's all the way through uh um, so assembly here is ecclesia and, oh, I see what you're asking. So here's, so there's, there's Penegiri, the joyful festal assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So no, there is no Kai between, yes, there is. Sorry. You're asking between uh, assembly and church. Yes. This Kai right here uh, separates. Uh, uh, sorry, you're asking about assembly. Do you mean this word, Panegyrius assembly? <laughs> yes. Um, if I'm understanding what you're asking, this is the word Panegyria here that is the joyful assembly, joyful gather. The reason, I'm, reason I got tripped up on that is because ecclesia is uh, often translated assembly. So uh, that's why, are you at, are you calling Panagiri Assembly and Ecclesia Church? If that's what you're asking, then yes, this Kai separates those two. 
that has to be why you, what you're asking now that I think about it. All right. I know for some of you like, oh, who cares? What, what does this matter? Um, and maybe, maybe I spend too much time on the grammar. But let me get back to the, to the other question. What, where else does the Old Testament talk about firstborn? And there being more than one of them. Do you remember? So I'm just going to throw this out. I'm not, I'm not 100% certain of this. But as I was pondering this, it made me think of Numbers 3. He says, now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. A little bit later, same chapter, he says, you shall take the Levites from me. I am the Lord instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. Take the Levites instead and all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle. And then for the ransom of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel are the Levites and so on. So what's God doing there? Do you remember the, the point? When God passed over the Israelites at the Passover, uh, when he killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, he spared the firstborn sons of the Israelites because they obeyed. He said, Take the lamb's blood, put it over your doorpost, and I will pass over it. And he did. But then as he's inaugurating the old covenant, he says, I still have a claim on your firstborns. All your firstborn sons belong to me. And he's taking the Levites as those firstborn sons. Well, what became the significance of the Levites? They were the priests, right? They were those who ministered in the temple tabernacle in the presence of God in Jerusalem. So I wonder, I just wonder if, if, this, if that's the significance. If he's saying that we, this joyful assembly of, or joyful yeah, public gathering of the called out ones, of the firstborns, if he's saying we are all Levites, that fits with the idea, the promise that God made to the Jews that if they were obedient to the old covenant, they would be a kingdom of priests, entire kingdom, all priests. But of course, they broke the old covenant. But as we look to see how all this applies to us as believers, we have this, this yeah, Ken God, the priests of all believers. Uh, I think Luther was the one who really popularized that term. Is he getting at here? We are the gathering of the firstborns. We're all Levites. We've all been taken by God as his priests. We are, we have become. The new covenant believers are the kingdom of priests. If that's what he's getting at, then you could see why this would be 
so wonderful for these Christians say who were formerly Jews. You are, you're the firstborns. You, you are priests. doesn't matter what tribe you came from. You are priests in the city of the living God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. You minister in the presence of God. So don't go back to the old ways. Does that make sense? Uh, Mark says, yes. I don't know if, if you're saying yes to me or to somebody else. He also said, those who are part of the first resurrection, believers, those who are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Yeah, now you're grabbing from other, other texts. Uh, I see Ephesians uh, there and Revelation. Um, maybe, maybe. I don't want to make assumptions about what those passages mean uh, without having the time to kind of go there. When I say, by the way, context, see, I look at the whole Old Testament as context for any passage in the New Testament because that's what they had. That's what the, the first century had. What we have to be careful of is doing too much cross-referencing among New Testament epistles because we don't know what these believers had. We don't know this, these, this uh, Hebrew audience, Hebrews audience, we don't know if they had the other New Testament letters. So we, we got to be careful and not jump around too much. But they had the whole Old Testament. So anyway, just want to make a, a side note. Anyway, our time is up. I, I find that fascinating, and I can't help but wonder if that's what he's getting at. If so, it, it, it's a wonderful reminder of these New Covenant folks of what they have in Christ. And for us, same thing. So think about it. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll talk about it a little more, and then we'll get into the, uh, uh, the next phrases as well. All right, friends, have a great day, and Lord willing, we will see you again tomorrow. God bless.